Well, let's continue to worship before the throne of God by opening his word and turning to the gospel of John. And we are going to be wrapping up John's prologue to his gospel this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. John wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Father, again, we come to some of the richest, deepest truths ever mentioned in your word. And Lord, who is adequate for these things, Lord, to try to explain them in ways that are understandable. Lord, I thank you that your spirit and your word are sufficient to accomplish the work in our hearts to grant us understanding, grant us growth and change. Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us to uh, understand these words and uh, make application of them to our hearts and lives. Lord, that we would all leave here this morning with a bigger view of Jesus, more in love with him than we've ever been before, and more committed to live out his truth in this world. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, the late American radio broadcaster, Paul Harvey, told the following story. One raw winter, it was at night, and a man heard an irregular thumping sound against the kitchen storm door. He went to a window and watched as tiny, shivering sparrows, attracted to the evident warmth inside, beat in vain against the glass. Touched by their sad plight, the farmer bundled up and trudged through the fresh snow to open the barn for the struggling birds. He turned on the lights, tossed some hay in a quarter, and sprinkled a trail of crackers to direct them to the barn. But the sparrows, which had scattered in all directions when he emerged from the house, still hid in the darkness, afraid of him. He tried various tactics, circling behind the birds to drive them toward the barn, tossing cracker crumbs in the air toward them, retreating to his house to see if they'd flutter into the barn on their own. Nothing worked. He, a huge alien creature, had terrified them. The birds could not understand that he actually wanted to help them. He withdrew to his house and he watched the doomed sparrows through a window And as he stared, a thought hit him like lightning. If only I could become a bird, one of them, just for a moment, then I wouldn't frighten them so. I could show them the way to warmth and safety. And it was at that same moment, another thought dawned on him that he had grasped the whole principle of the incarnation. And Harvey went on to say, a man becoming a bird is nothing compared to God becoming a man. The concept of a sovereign 
being as big as the universe he created, confining himself to a human body was and is too much for some people to believe. This morning, we are going to look at one of the greatest, most mysterious doctrines of the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of the incarnation. And simply defined, what we mean by the incarnation is that God became a man, that God took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's no clearer description of this profound doctrine, the doctrine of in- or incarnation, than this final section of John's gospel, or John's prologue to his gospel, verses 14 through 18. Now, if you remember from weeks ago, and I've passed out an outline again this morning with our general outline for this, these first 18 verses, basically eight truths about Jesus that we're going to see over and over again, and we're down to our last two. The last two truths are the incarnation, how Christ embodied God and the explanation how God explained or how Jesus explained God. And so this morning, we're going to focus on these last two and really focus in on verses 14 to 18. And we're going to see five things this morning. We're going to see how, first of all, Jesus physically embodied God's glory. Secondly, how Jesus eternally existed in God's presence. Thirdly, how Jesus totally epitomized God's nature Fourthly, how Jesus perfectly effectuated or accomplished God's plan. And then finally, how Jesus clearly explained God's heart. And so let's look at each one of these verses one at a time. In the first verse, verse 14, we see how Jesus physically embodied God's glory. Notice he says, and the word became flesh. Now John was obviously referring back to or returning to his original description of Jesus as the Word. Back in chapter 1, or verse 1, excuse me, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He had transferred that to the picture of a light, that Jesus is the light of the world uh, that came to pierce the darkness. Now he's going back to this idea of the Word, which again was a reference to the fact that Jesus was the one through whom God communicated what he wanted us to know about himself that he spoke to us and told us what we needed to know through the person of Jesus Christ. And it says the word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. And here we find, I think, the most explicit statement in the entire Bible of the doctrine of the incarnation. And it's very simple, uh, simply stated, and yet it's it's a concept that truly staggers the imagination. When it says that the word became flesh... And we know that this happened through the miracle of the virgin birth. A baby named Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem. And the other gospel writers make it clear that this was no ordinary child, that he indeed was God's son. Turn turn back with me to the gospel of Luke for a moment, and I want you to see how Luke describes the announcement of the birth of Christ. uh, Excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 Luke chapter 1, verse 26, Luke records, now in the sixth month, and that was the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, she was, uh, uh, had given, uh, had conceived John the Baptist in her womb, so now it's in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary's first response to this astounding announcement was, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? In fact, it's already been stated twice by Luke in the previous verses. Uh, He wanted to make it very clear that this girl was a virgin. She had never had any kind of physical relationship with another man, especially her uh, fiancé, Joseph. And then here it is in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called, who? The Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph, right? But the Son of God. Well, we see that from Mary's perspective. How about from Joseph's perspective? Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 We're having a little Christmas in October here. These are all the Christmas passages that we normally only look at around Christmas time. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. In other words, before they were married and before they had sexual relationships, that she was found to be with child. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. This was a scandalous situation where she had gotten married, gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And of course, Joseph's first response was, well, who's the, who's the dad? Because I know it's not me, right? Well, verse 20, but when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and he quotes Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Really, that's the essence of the incarnation, is that God is with us. We know that that indeed happened because back in in Luke, in Luke chapter 2, we have the account of the actual birth of Christ when they were in Bethlehem and uh, Mary gave birth to this child in a stable there. And uh, we know that in the same region, it says in Luke chapter 2, there were shepherds watching their fields, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And so really, Matthew and Luke look at Christ's birth or the birth of Jesus from a human perspective, right? The actual uh, events that led up to that, whereas John is looking at the birth of Jesus from a heavenly perspective, from God's perspective, if you will, and he says, and the word became flesh, 
and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Another key passage of uh, when it comes to the incarnation is Philippians chapter 2. Turn over there for a second. Philippians chapter 2, and this is a very critical uh, text here for understanding of what happened in, in the, in, when God became a man. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul is writing to the Philippian church and he's encouraging them to do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind to consider others more important than themselves. And then he uses Jesus as the example uh, of someone who had a humble, selfless attitude. And he says this in verse 5, having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, i.e. he was God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is where theologians come up with the concept that they call the kenosis, which is a word in, in the Greek, which simply means, in the Greek language, which simply means emptying yourself. And of course, they draw it from that phrase in verse 6, where it says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but he emptied himself. And I think it's important to note here that, that the, the second member of the Godhead didn't empty himself of deity, okay, even though it says he emptied himself. What does that mean? Does that mean he, he, he stopped being God? Okay, I don't think the Son of God ever stopped being God. And yet he simply, what he did, he set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. Uh, another way you could say it is the, that he added a human nature to his divine nature. So that God had a, or excuse me, that, that Jesus, okay, had a, had, a, had a human nature, but he also had a divine nature. And, and it wasn't that he had like, he wasn't, he wasn't like 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. You say, that doesn't make any sense. 200%? Well, that's why theologians came up with another fancy term to describe things we don't understand. So let's just come up with a word we don't understand. It's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is simply saying that God was both fully, or excuse me, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. All God, all man, all the time. And you're like, okay, I don't understand how that can happen. Well, maybe make it really simple. If you're, I'm not a math guy, but I can understand basic addition and subtraction, okay? And so basically what we have here, we don't have subtraction. It's not like God or God gave up his deity and came down and became a man, okay? He simply added a human nature to his already divine nature. He never surrendered his deity, but he took on human limitations, and so he, his deity was clothed in humanity. God, as it were, disguised himself as a man. You've probably all read that story or heard the story, watched the movie, The Prince and the Pauper. It's a classic tale of a, of a prince who switches places, right, with, with a little poor boy who lives in the slums. And, and the poor go, boy goes and lives in the castle, right, as if he was the king's kid, and, uh, and the king's kid is living in the slums. He's dressed up like, like a little pauper boy. And I think this is a beautiful picture of what it says in Corinthians about how God became, what, Christ became poor so that we might become 
rich. And so God humbly and, and, and graciously came into the world in a human body to identify with our entire experience as human beings here on earth from the cradle to the grave. Have you ever ask yourself, why didn't Jesus just spend a weekend here? I mean, seriously, why didn't he just spend the weekend? I mean, because we, we talk about the gospel and it's, it's Christ's death and resurrection. Well, he pulled that off in a weekend. He could have come down here Friday afternoon, hung on a cross, died, was in the grave Sunday morning, rose from the dead. He's out of here. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya, right? We're out of here. He, he could have done that. But he didn't do that. Why? Because he needed to live a perfect life on this earth to earn our righteousness. And I think also he wanted to give us some time to get to know him. 33 years we had to get to know God. I think when John says here the word became flesh, he was likely combating a a, a heretical thought that was going around in that day called docetism, which was basically the idea that God could never and would never have any connection with evil human nature. And so he simply descended in spirit form at Jesus' baptism, right? When the dove came down, the spirit of God came down and, 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 and entered Jesus, this man Jesus, and then he returned back to heaven right before the crucifixion. And John's like, no, the word became flesh, okay? That, that docetic idea really was a denial of the, of the humanity of Jesus Christ, And John wanted to make it clear that Jesus was no phantom, he was no spirit being when he ministered here on earth. He was real flesh and blood, and he was subject to all the temptations and all the infirmities that come with having a human nature, albeit a sinless one. And we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John how Jesus got tired, like literally physically tired and had to sleep. He got thirsty, how he was troubled in his spirit, how he wept. Um, how he endured physical pain and agony, how he literally bled and died. And, and even after he came back to life, how he had a body that was glorified, but it was a body nevertheless. It was a literal, touchable body. And, uh, you know, I think it would have been very easy for the disciples and us to, to assume that he had turned into some ghost or some spirit because he just kept popping out of places, right? He'd, he'd walk through a wall and he'd show up. Boom, he's there. And, and, but what, did he, what was he always quick to do? Hey, give me some fish to eat. You got anything to eat around here? Because he wanted to show, hey, I'm a real guy. I'm a, I, I have a, truly, I'm still a human. And, and even uh, Thomas said, unless I put my hands, right, in his scars and his hand in the side, uh, then I'm not going to believe. And so he showed up and he said, Thomas, here you go. Have a feel. Touch. Thomas didn't even have to touch him, right? He knew, and he believed. And so the thing we need to remember, and this is really a a kind of a challenging concept to, to get our minds around, and yet I think it's biblical, is that the Son of God retained his human body when he returned to heaven. That it wasn't just some shell that he cast off, right? I mean, we're gonna have glorified bodies in heaven, right? Uh, we don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but we're going to have an actual body, a physical. We're not just going to be a bunch of spirits floating around, right? We're going to have a physical body. And so we need to understand that there is a real man seated at the right hand of God right now. A real man like us. A human being. Someone with a human nature, right? That I believe that God or the, the Son of God retained. And so notice it says, And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, literally pitched his tent. God came down and, and camped out here on earth. <laughs> the, the word is the same word that, that was used for tabernacle. He tabernacled among us, which I think is a clear reference to the tabernacle in Israel when uh, God told them to make a, a tent uh, of meeting uh, as they were to travel around the wilderness and they would set it up and they would tear it down and, and, and it really served as a temporary place where people could meet who? God. And it was humble in its appearance, but inside dwelled the Shekinah glory of God. And that glory would come down and then and leave and come down and leave as, the, as they would move around through the wilderness. And so notice he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his what? His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now that's a phrase, the only begotten from the Father, that we're going to see a number of times uh, here in the Gospel of John. He says it again in, in verse 18, the only begotten God. He says it in, of course, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, what? Begotten Son, right? Uh, he says it uh, in, in, in uh, verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John mentions it again in 1 John 4, 9, this, this idea of only begotten. And, and I think you say, well, what does this mean, only begotten? Well, obviously it means, in its most basic concept, is that Jesus is the only son that God ever had. Okay? He didn't, he didn't have more than one son. He, he's unique. He's, he's the only one of its kind. He's in a class all by himself. He's the one and only that's a, maybe a phrase that you could put in there, the, the only begotten Son, the one and only Son of God. And so this phrase, I think, not only distinguishes Jesus from, from what some would teach, like the Mormon church teaches, that, that Jesus and Satan are brothers. And so, no, there's no other Son of God. There's only Jesus. Um, I think it also distinguishes from those who claim to be a prophet sent from God. No, they say there's only one and only, one and only, and that's Jesus. And I think it also distinguishes Jesus from us. Because what are we called when we receive Jesus and we believe in him according to verse 12? We become his what? Children. We become his sons. We become his, become his daughters. And so this is a way that, that sets Jesus apart from us who believe in him and as a result are born of God. We're not born of God in the same way that Jesus was born of God. Notice he says here, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. That phrase there, we beheld, or we saw his glory. John was talking about the fact that he literally saw it with his own eyes. That he was a personal eyewitness of, of the miracle of the incarnation, where the unseen God became flesh. Listen to how he, just, he, he introduces his first letter, his first epistle, uh, 1 John chapter 1. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, we, we saw with our own eyes his, his glory. And when, when we talk about God's glory, 
basically that's a way of talking about who he is. I mean, how, how do you describe God? I mean, he's got all these different attributes and characteristics. Well, the, the best way to describe it is just, just his glory. And, and it's everything that God is, you could say, is what we call his glory. And so it says, we saw his glory. And while, while his glory was veiled, if you will, with human flesh, disguised, if you will, with human flesh, that, that Jesus nevertheless revealed the glorious perfections of God. You say, how did he do that? Well, he lived a perfect, sinless life. There was no flaw or blemish in him. He was absolutely perfect in everything he said, everything he did. And he exemplified all of God's attributes, God's truth, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's wisdom, God's wrath, God's faithfulness, God's holiness. In fact, John says uh, later in in his gospel, John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. We're the same. And so he embodied God's glory. I think he also put on glorious display God's power through the miracles that he performed, the most powerful of which was obviously the resurrection from the dead. But in chapter 2, the first miracle that John records is when he just turned water into wine. That didn't seem like a big deal, right, compared to being raised from the dead. But nevertheless, listen to what he says in John two eleven. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in the Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I also have to believe that when John wrote this, when he said, and we saw his glory, he was referring to all that 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 we've talked about already, but I think he also had to have in mind the transfiguration. When he was given that privilege to see when Jesus peeled back his flesh, if you will, to reveal his true nature. We find this um, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Listen to what he said, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, I would say, fully, <laughs> that, that woke them up, right? They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving them, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. That's typically Peter's motto. He was not realizing what he was saying, right? Um, but it came, he spoke before he thought, right? Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So I think what John is saying here in his gospel is, listen, with, I, I saw God's glory shining forth from Jesus with my own two eyes. I was there on that mountain. I'll never forget it. And I heard with my own two ears, God's voice confirmed that this was his son. I mean, what what more evidence do you need than that? God said, this is my son. And so again, Jesus embodied God's glory physically. A little more Christmas in October 
Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Charles Wesley. Goes like this Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. And so we see here in verse 14 how, God, how, how Jesus physically embodied God's glory. But then we see, secondly, that Jesus eternally existed in God's presence. Jesus eternally existed in God's presence. Notice verse 15. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, this is not John the Apostle. This is John the Baptist, right? And so we know that that John the Baptist served as the last of the Old Testament prophets, He was the forerunner of Christ. He was testifying to the Jews that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. And then when Jesus came, he he decreased, right, so that Christ could increase. And he pointed to him and said, this is the guy I've been talking about. This is the guy that is of higher rank than I. I'm not even worthy to untie the guy's sandals. Why? It says, for he existed before me. Well, if you know anything about the chronology of John the Baptist's birth and Jesus' birth, that's not true from a human perspective. Because John was conceived and born six months before Jesus. Or three months, however you wanted to figure out that time frame. Point was he was conceived and born before Jesus. And yet John said, no, he existed before me as obviously what? The eternal son of God. And he goes back to His thought in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And so a very simple point, that Jesus eternally existed in God's presence. We know that. We already looked at that at the beginning of this prologue. Thirdly, Jesus totally epitomized God's nature. Jesus totally epitomized God's nature. Notice we skipped over a phrase in verse 14. It says, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth, which he picks up again here in verses 16 and 17. For of his fullness we've all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so this is interesting. John could have chosen anything, really under the inspiration of the Spirit, right, to describe Jesus, to boil his life down, to capsulize his life. And he just said, we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus' life was characterized, completely characterized by grace and truth. He was the perfect blend of these two divine qualities. He was the fullest expression of God's grace and truth. And really, this, this, the, these, these terms, grace and truth, they really... They really epitomize who God is. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 34, that account where Moses told God that he wanted to see his glory, he said, God, show me your glory. You gotta love that. He says, show me your glory. And, and, and God's like, Moses, I appreciate that, dude, but if you see my glory, it'll kill you, Okay? So I tell you what I'll do. I'm going to put you in a rock, a little cave, and I'm going to walk by, and I'm going to put my hand over the rock so you can't see me, and then I'm going to let my hand off, and you're going to see my backside. Interesting, when it's described, when, when, when Moses describes what he saw, he didn't see anything. He heard something. 
And this is Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. If you were to summarize that that beautiful description of God, you could do it in two words. Great, God is gracious, and God is full of truth. He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. We know God's grace is simply his kindness and favor to those who cannot earn it or don't deserve it. His truth is that, that the fact that while God is kind and gracious towards us as sinners, he will not let the guilty go unpunished, right? He, he never approves of sin or excuses sin. He must punish sin. And so Jesus epitomized these two attributes of God, that he, he demonstrated God's love for sinners and his hatred for sin at the same time on the cross. And the truth is, is that the wages of sin is death, and yet Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin so he could show us his undeserved, unearned kindness in saving our souls. And so we see these two attributes of God, grace and truth, epitomized by Christ and and mainly at the cross because we see God's grace and we see God's truth displayed on the cross. I think it'd be helpful just to also mention here when we talk about full of grace and truth that if we want to be like Jesus, it means that we're going to be full of grace and truth, that, that this should epitomize our life as well. And uh, it's a real simple thing to, to remember. I mean, just that, that we need to be truthful and we need to be gracious with people. We need to, we need to learn to treat other people with grace and truth. You say, what does that look like? Well, I read a helpful little book a couple years ago by Randy Alcorn called The Grace and Truth Paradox. It's like his treasure principle, purity principle. This is called The Grace and Truth Paradox. Short little book, but very helpful. And he just unpacks what does it mean that that Jesus was grace and truth, and what does it mean that we should be full of grace and truth? And he says this, quote, truth-oriented Christians, that might be some of you, truth-oriented Christians, love studying scripture and theology, but sometimes they're quick to judge and slow to forgive. They're strong on truth, weak on grace. Grace-oriented Christians, that might be you, grace-oriented Christians, on the other hand, love forgiveness and freedom, but sometimes they neglect Bible study and see moral standards as legalism. They're strong on grace, weak on truth. Countless mistakes in marriage, parenting, ministry, and other relationships are failures to balance grace and truth. I had somebody come up very honestly after the first service and said, you know what? That really hit home when it comes to our parents. We're all about truth with our kids, and we're not, there's not a whole lot of grace. And we're wondering if that's leading to exasperation, right? And why they're having a hard time obeying and honoring us, right? Because we're always on them. Truth, truth, this is the truth. Well, you know, there, and there's very little grace. Um, others of you are far too gracious with your children, and there is no truth. And that's why they're running all over you and all running all over the house and running all over the church, right? Because you're not being truthful with them. And so Randy Alcorn says this, just very practically. He says, when we offend everybody, it's because we've taken on the truth mantle without grace. When we offend nobody, it's because we've watered down truth in the name of grace. So some of us, I think, at times are guilty of just being obnoxious 
with the truth. And we're not gracious at all. And some of us are just so, oh, really? Oh, that's all oh, gracious. And it's all gracious. And, and, and you never confront sin and deal with issues, right? And so have you ever gotten a, this, this book really impacted my life, the, the, the Grace and Truth Paradox. And after I read that book, I started signing all of my letters and all my emails with a little phrase, Grace and Truth. Because I just wanted to remember that as my goal in life, that I want to epitomize the life of Christ who epitomized the life of God, right? Which, which was, he was just gracious and truthful. And, 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 I, and I, it's a good reminder for me as I shoot it out to you guys in emails, as I interact with you, it's a, it's a good reminder, I think, about the goal of our church. That what do we want to be known for? We want to be known for a, as a church that, that, that holds to the truth, unwaveringly, uncompromising. We hold up the truth of God's word, but we do it in the most gracious possible way. That we're not just a bunch of jerks, obnoxious, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, you know, right? But we do it in a very gracious, loving way. And so you can actually confront someone with the truth with a smile on your face because you're so gracious in how you're communicating that truth. And it's a hard balance to strike, but Jesus did it, and it should be our goal as well. Notice, jumping down to verse 16, for, his, for of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. He was full of grace and truth, And of that fullness, we've received. In other words, we've benefited from the fact that he was full of grace and truth. For of his fullness, we have all received that grace. And all who receive Christ as their Savior and Lord, we receive an endless supply of God's grace and his blessings. And it says even grace upon grace. In other words, God just heaping one blessing after another upon those he grants the right, the privilege to become his children. We never lack for anything. His grace is, is, is continuously poured out upon us like waves that just continuously crash against the shore. They never stop. Paul said it this way, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. James 4, 6, but he gives greater grace. And so the Christian life is really just the constant reception of one evidence of God's grace after another. And so we need to get keyed in on that and tuned into that and say, you know, we need to learn to, to notice these evidences of God's grace. At any given moment, you should be able to say, you know what, God is evidencing, he's showing his grace to me right now through this and by this, and he's showing his grace to, to, to you through this, and we should be able to point out evidences of grace in other people's lives as well and help them see how God is being so gracious to them. Well, there's a fourth thing we see here in verse 17. And that is Jesus perfectly effectuated God's plan. He effectuated God's plan. And by effectuate, I mean he fulfilled or completed or accomplished God's plan. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so here's John contrasting the Old Testament era with the New Testament era. And we know that the Old Testament laid the foundation for the New Testament, and the New Testament is all about who? Jesus. And so what's the Old Testament all about? Jesus, right? If it was laying the foundation, right, for the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. And all the ceremonies and all the prophecies and all the types and all the pictures in the Old Testament were pointing to one person. And who was it? It was Jesus. 
And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all that foreshadowing that we see in the Old Testament. And so he says, for the law was given through Moses. In other words, in the law, God commanded men to obey. And not just to obey most of the time, or even uh, some of the time, but what? All the time. To obey perfectly. And if they didn't, what would happen? They would die. They would be cursed, right? And the New Testament even repeats this, that how, cursed is the one, right, who, who doesn't keep all the law. The law is, if you don't keep the law perfectly, you are cursed. And so the law tells us what to do and what not to do. But have you ever realized that the law doesn't give you the power to not do it or to do it? See, the law was not given, I think, for us to keep as much as it was given to show us that we couldn't keep it. It was given to show us that we were sinners who who need someone to save us from our sins, someone who can do what we can't do. And so in the law, God established a standard of righteousness that no one could meet except who? Him. He has set up this, this standard of righteousness that the only one who could meet it was himself. And so God himself came to earth to meet the standards for us. And so the law reveals sin, but it doesn't remove sin. And that's why Jesus had to come to take away our sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. So the perpetual keeping of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system and the killing of all those, the, the animals and the, the, the spilling of all that blood, that merely covered sin until it would be canceled completely once and for all by Christ at Calvary. There's a question that a lot of people ask is, well, how were Old Testament saints saved before the cross? And I think the answer to that is they were saved the same way those of us who are Christians after the cross, right? It's through faith in God's plan for salvation. And at the time, God's plan was you kill this cow, right? You kill this sheep in, your, in the place of, uh, you know, take your punishment for your sin, right? And ultimately, there's a Messiah who's coming, right, who will deliver you. And their faith in that system, their obedience to that system, right, God applied to the cross, And so while they were killing a lamb, right, for their sin, God was seeing that applied to Christ because he knew that the ultimate lamb was coming. And so we're all saved the same way through faith in in, in Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, the Old Testament saints didn't necessarily see it the way we do, right? Notice he says that grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is that savior that the law set us up for. That he didn't come to judge but to save those who couldn't save themselves. And so Jesus fulfilled all the demands of the law in our place through his sinless life and sin-bearing death. And what's ironic about this is even though he perfectly obeyed the commands of the law, he willingly endured the curse of the law. You'd think, you know, hey, I, you know, Jesus got the end of his life and said, hey, hey Dad, guess what? I, I obeyed you perfectly. Do do I still have to die? Do I still have to experience the curse? Right? That that was part of what was going on in the garden. Lord, if there's any other way, 
but not my will, but yours be done, right? He not only perfectly obeyed the commands of the law, he didn't deserve to die, and yet he died anyway. He willingly endured the curse of the law. Romans 5.20 says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Galatians chapter 4, a passage that I'll often go to at Christmas time, and people are wondering, what am I doing in Galatians at Christmas? Don't you need to be in the Gospels? And, but Galatians 4 is a great Christmas text. Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so Jesus delivered us from the law. Does that mean we don't have to obey? We don't have to honor the Lord and obey his commands? No. Because while the law points us to Christ, who kept the law perfectly and endured the, the consequences of, not, of our not obeying the law, right? Christ points us back to the law. And he says, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. And, and if you love me, my commandments are not what? Burdensome. Someone has said it this way, Moses was the channel of God's holy law and the covenant promises of the Old Testament, and great as the assurances of the scriptures Moses penned are, they received their completed meaning and saving power in the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. And we see, so we see how Christ effectuated, perfectly accomplished God's plan. And then lastly, Jesus clearly explained God's heart. Jesus clearly explained God's heart. And here we find one of the most glorious verses in the Gospel of John. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Talk about a, a climactic crescendo to John's prologue. Here it is, verse 18. And he says, no man has seen God at any time. Why? Well, John's going to tell us in chapter 4, verse 24, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So why can't we see God? Because he doesn't have a body, right? He's a spirit. And because he doesn't have a body, that means he's invisible. You can't see him Physically, John chapter 6, verse 46, um, this is what he says here, not that anyone has seen the Father, okay? So he's just saying you can't see the Father. 1 John 4, 12 says the same thing, that, that you can't see God. 1 Timothy 1, 17, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, 1 Timothy 6, 16, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the point is, you can't see God, and even if you could see God, you know what? You wouldn't survive the experience. You wouldn't survive to tell about it. And when Moses asked God to show him his glory, 
He said in Exodus 33, verse 23, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And so since none of us could see God, nor would survive a face-to-face encounter with God, God, the eternal spirit, wrapped himself in flesh, clothed himself with humanity, dressed up in a human body, and came to earth so we could see him and live to tell about it. Some of you probably remember the, the old uh, Invisible Man series, H.G. Wells, right? The guy shows up with this bandaged face, right? He's got glasses, he's got a hat, he's got a suit on. And as long as he keeps that bandage on and the, and the suit on, you can see him where he's going. But if he unwraps his face, he takes his hat off, takes his clothes, he's invisible. So the point is that God made himself visible to us by putting on a human body so we could see him. And, and he did it through the one who has been at his side in personal union with him. And don't miss this, this, this profound truth here where he says, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Again, he uses that begotten thing. Again, don't think for a second that there was a time when the Son of God was not, that he didn't exist. Okay, and then the Father brought him into being. No, he was always there. He was eternally existing with the Father. In fact, <laughs> Your translation may say no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten, what, son? Your translation may say, may say son. Um, the original manuscripts, the oldest and best manuscripts, have the word God, the only begotten God, which, by the way, I think was John's way of affirming one last time, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is who? God. And so this was a, a, just a powerful crescendo to his prologue. And that's, by the, way, well, by the way, why you need a new American standard, because they keep the word God in there. I'm just kidding. But uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thought there. What was he saying? The only begotten God, Jesus is God, who is in the bosom of the Father. This is beautiful. This is essentially the same expression that John used later in the gospel when he described when he had reclined on Jesus' bosom during the Last Supper. Listen to uh, John 13, 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom, his chest, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That was a reference to himself, right? John said, hey, I, I, I laid back on Jesus' chest during that, that final supper, which obviously showed the close relationship that, that John shared with Jesus, that they had an intimate friendship with each other, that John had a special place in Jesus' heart. And I think in like manner, when he says, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he was describing the closeness between the Father and the Son, that they enjoyed an intimate relationship with each other. The Son had a very special place in the Father's heart. And so who better to explain God to us than his most intimate friend, his most intimate companion, his closest confidant, if you will, the one who had been with him for all eternity. And so he sent the son to explain him. And that word, when he says he has explained him, it's the word where we get our English word exegete, which isn't a word we use a whole lot in the English language. We use it in seminary, though. It's one of preacher's favorite words, exegete. 
because it's the word that we, we really apply every week in our study of God's word and our, our delivery of God's word. We, we exegete the scriptures, which means we, we draw out the meaning of the scriptures. We, we mine the verses and we say, okay, figure out what does this mean? And then we, we try to expound those things and we try to explain those things to people. We're exegeting the scriptures, drawing out the meaning of the text and making it plain, making it understandable. And so Jesus did that With God, he makes God understandable. He makes him accessible to us. You know, sometimes you're reading a passage of scripture, you're like, man, I just don't get that. And then somebody gets up and and, and they explain it and they're like, oh, I get it now. And so people are like, you know, I just don't get God. He's just like way out there. I just don't get him. And then Jesus shows up like, oh, I get it now. He explained to me what God is like. And so Jesus makes it possible for us to have an intimate relationship with God like he has. In fact, it's impossible to know God apart from knowing his son. We're going we're to see in John 17, verse 3, John said, or this is Jesus, in the high priestly prayer, he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. In other words, you can't know God without knowing Jesus. And then look at John 14 just quickly. John 14 6. We all know John 14, 6. We can all quote it from, by heart, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, right? In other words, you cannot access God or have a relationship with God unless you have a relationship with Jesus. But notice how he goes on. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Guess what? Disciples, you know God because you know me. And guess what, guys? You've seen God because you've seen me. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. It still wasn't registering, right? And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, And so because of Jesus, we know what God is like. We know God's thoughts and his words and his attitudes and his emotions and his feelings and his actions. And ultimately, we know God's heart because it was expressed through the heart of Christ. Someone said it very profoundly, I think. He said this, quote, It is as if God reached into his very being and plucked out his own heart in sending Christ to us. It's like God took out his heart and sent it to us. Sent it down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, you are seeing God. John 12, 24, or 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. And so if that is true, if when we are seeing Jesus, we are seeing God. He shares the very nature of God. Then we are called to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption because he is the God of the universe. And that is the only right, natural, appropriate response when we realize and truly believe that Jesus is God. 
And that's the main message of this entire gospel, which John really summarized here in these first 18 verses. And so we said this already, but these verses really serve as a a thesis statement, if you will, which John intended to prove and expand on on in the rest of the gospel. But I don't think this was just an academic exercise. Let me just write for you my thesis of the gospel of John, right? I think he was intending not only for this to serve as a thesis, kind of as an outline for what he was about to to teach us, but he he was wanting to expand and enlarge our view of the glorious greatness of Jesus Christ that we would have a bigger view of Jesus. And so he just gave us like Jesus 101. (laughs) Like boom, in your face, overview, this is who Jesus is. And he boils it all down into these 18 verses and tells us everything we need to know about Jesus. Do you realize that your spiritual growth, my spiritual growth is, is, is bound up in our view of Jesus. Dr. R. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite commentators, in his comments on this prologue said this. He said, our spiritual growth is inextricably bound up with the size of our vision of Jesus. Once we get away from an one-dimensional, one-dimensional or overly narrow picture of Christ, once we see the fullness and glory of Christ in the scriptures, our lives will be enlarged, will grow, will change. He said, I believe most of us need a bigger vision of Jesus. If believers were to recapture the greatness of Christ, it would make an enormous difference in this world. And I would also say it would make an enormous difference in your life, an enormous difference in this church for all of us to have a bigger Jesus. And I hope that as we've gone through this introduction that you have a much higher, a much greater view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, but also in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, here in the Gospel of John, we have both of these revelations kind of working double duty. We're getting the getting you revealed to us through the the words of scripture, but we're also getting you revealed to us through the example of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause these, this series on the gospel of John to be doubly potent, doubly powerful. Lord, as we're exposed to that double revelation every week, and that ultimately, Lord, people would come to Christ, and that we would grow in Christ, and that ultimately our view of Christ would grow and expand and enlarge where we have a a view of him that is worthy of his glory and greatness. We pray this in his name, amen.